All right, Tom, let's start at the very beginning of your journey. Where are you from? Where were you born, raised? What kind of background? Sure. Uh, I was born in a suburb a little bit outside of Boston, Massachusetts, a small town called Hopkinton, which is where the Boston Marathon starts, so 26 miles west of the city. And uh, I grew up there. I lived there my whole life, went to high school there at the local public high school, and then I uh, ended up going to Boston College, um, so pretty close to home for school, and I went there to go uh, study biology, and, which is what I majored in, and become a doctor. So I was, I was pre-med, and that was my, my plan going to college. Okay. And um, what, um, what did you study in Boston College uh, for pre-med, you said, right? Yeah, I was pre-med to start, uh, or actually, I, I, well, we'll get to this in a second. I ended up dropping out of college to start my company, but when I dropped out, I was a biology major, and I had also picked up a theology double major. So I was uh, studying science and religion, and then ended up doing a marketing technology and data company instead. <laughs> and what year um, are we talking when you were in Boston College and about to drop out to start your company? Yeah, I got to school in 2009, so I was, uh, I was the class of 2013. Okay. Um, so 20, to, you started college in 2000, did you drop off right away? I started college in 2009, I dropped out in 2012, so I, I made it okay. through, I made it through the first three, three years. and a half years technically, I technically dropped out with only one semester left. Got it, got it, okay. All right, I'm with you, so far I'm with you. Now, yes. um, let's talk about why you dropped out with what idea and under what circumstances. Yeah, so our school, like a lot of universities now, had a business plan competition, and I learned about that my probably first week of school freshman year, and even though I was studying biology, my roommates at the time were all in the business school, and so we just made it a goal together that we wanted to try to start a company and win that business plan competition by the time we graduated. And so we started meeting every week. Uh, I remember we would meet every Tuesday and Thursday for a couple hours and we started brainstorming ideas and figuring out, you know, what idea we wanted to start. And, you know, a lot of people always ask me, if you were studying biology and theology, how did you end up starting a marketing software company? Uh, and it's because we just had this desire to start a business and we were just trying to brainstorm any and all ideas. And what most people don't know is Jebit was actually the fifth idea I started working on uh, while at school. So we tried to do a medical device company, an athletic apparel brand. There were a couple different things we did. But long story short, we ended up winning the business plan competition during our sophomore year. We ended up working out of a venture capital office, uh, Highland Capital Partners in Boston for the summer through an accelerator program that they ran. And then I ran the business for another year and a half from school, for, so my whole junior and the first part of my senior year. Uh, and when I dropped out, uh, it was, we had just hit a point where the business was growing way too much for me to try to keep up with schoolwork, business, and still trying to have you know, somewhat of a social life where I would see family or friends. 
Um, and so I ended up raising $250,000 at the start of my senior year uh, as a seed round. And, you know, once we closed that funding, um, I felt confident enough in, in leaving school and, and doing it full-time. Interesting. Tom, um, you have used the uh, pronoun we several times, so I take it there were others uh, on this team, on the founding team? There were, yeah, and there were, there were kind of a couple stages of founding teams. So there was, a, you know, there was the group of guys that I initially won the business plan competition with and did that uh, program at Highland Capital with. And then mm -hmm. for a whole host of different reasons, they kind of phased out at different points in time. And then there was a, me and two other co-founders that ended up dropping out of school. Um, so we were kind of the, the next uh, group of kind of, I think, the, the co-founding team that really, you know, went for it. I think it's, it's one thing Got to it. be kind of running business on the side while still being a full-time student, and then it's obviously a whole other thing to decide, no, I'm actually going to leave university and, you know, go try to do this full-time. And uh, which of the three of you were actually building the product? Was somebody technical on the team? Yep. So one was technical. His name's Chase, and then uh, myself and Jonathan were the two. I guess uh, I guess business guys would be the right term, but neither of us <laughs> had any experience. At that point, you were all young students. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Great. Great. Now, um, where did the two hundred fifty thousand seed capital come from? Whom did you raise that from? Yeah, so our first investor was uh, Dharmesh Shah, the co-founder and CTO of HubSpot. Um, wow, that's kind of so a, funny. I just spoke with Dharmesh this morning. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Oh, um, that is so funny. Okay, got it. We are, and, uh, you uh, met Dharmesh through Highland Capital? No. Uh, we're very thankful to Dharmesh for being our first investor because I think that spurred a lot of other people to invest after that. But uh, our story of meeting Dharmesh is actually very funny. He, uh, I saw that there was a marketing conference in Boston and they were doing kind of a mini Shark Tank competition and Dharmesh was one of the judges and we went and pitched and Dharmesh agreed to invest, uh, you know, just seeing the pitch. We had never met him before. So he saw, I think, a five-minute pitch. You can still find the video on YouTube somewhere. It was the, the Future M uh, conference in Boston. So this would have been 2012. And uh, yeah, he, he obviously liked something he saw in the pitch and chose to be our first investor. That's very interesting. Tarmish generally does not lead around. So what was your, uh, was it uh, a, a convertible debt or something that didn't Correct. have a pricing on it? Yeah, okay, it was a convertible debt. Yep, exactly. very good. Yeah. All right, now and we let's... and we had been just to add, sorry, one more point to that. Uh, I was, you know, in reading some of your content, I was definitely one of the 99% of entrepreneurs out there trying to raise money way too early. So yep. I had been, you know, I wouldn't say that I had made it, you know, my full time or even a, you know, more than half time focus, but I had been out there having conversations for over a year, probably pushing a year and a half, uh, mm -hmm. you know, before we happened to serendipitously meet Dharmesh. And obviously by that point, the business was further along. We had some solid revenue and we were growing a little bit. But uh, yes, I definitely wasted a lot of time in the early days uh, trying to raise money when we weren't ready. Good. I'm glad you acknowledged that right there. <laughs> Good lesson. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. <laughs> 
Now, what did you pitch Sarmesh that caught his attention? <laughs> I know what we pitched Sarmesh. You'd have to ask him what caught his attention because I'm not sure. We, uh, so at the, I'll take a half step back uh, to kind of explain how we eventually got to Jebit. You know, so what we do today is it's a software platform where marketers can create interactive experiences. Think mm -hmm. something like a quiz. If you've ever been to a website and you've done a quiz where you answer five questions and find the right products for you, yeah. we built the software where without touching a line of code, a marketer can quickly and easily build those and then put it anywhere they want, on their website, in their email, on their Facebook ads, whatever it might be. And okay. then behind that, we aggregate all the question and answer data. So it's this really valuable first-party data on people's interests, preferences, etc. The, the initial idea, uh, which you will see a loose connection to, but we've definitely pivoted a lot over the years, was I was watching a TV show on Hulu, and I ignored the video ads before the show. And I thought, what if you could put a question attached to that ad and pay people money to answer the question, proving that they paid attention to the ad? So it wasn't about gathering data from consumers. It was about, you know, you watch a car commercial, and we ask you, you know, how many miles per gallon are in that car, and we only charge the brand, the advertiser, if you get the question correct. So that was the original idea that we pitched in the business plan competition. We then okay. realized with being college students and only having one developer, uh, we realized that we were way above or over our skis trying to build that product. We, you know, you had to integrate with ad servers, you had to deal with fraud and paying people money and all these different things. So. The idea that we launched first and that we were doing a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue on that Darmesh invested in is it was a website exclusively for college students. So it was our own property that we owned. And college students could come log in. We would connect them with brands that were interested in them based on what they told us about them. And then they could go through little challenges and do quizzes and answer questions where they would learn more about the brand and the brand could learn about them, and they would get paid cash for doing so. But it just all happened on our website and just for college kids, which made it simpler for a variety of reasons. I see. So you were actually recruiting college students, and when, when a brand wanted to do some sort of a market research, they would come to your site and you would not only provide them with the software to run their quizzes or you know, surveys, whatever, market research, you would also provide the focus groups. Yes. So when Darmesh invested, we were a couple hundred thousand in revenue. We probably had, I don't know, 50,000 students, let's call it, around the country that were using mostly U.S.-based that were, I think it actually was all U.S.-based at the time. They were uh, logging into our website, so you know, half our marketing team was focused on students and getting them to register for the site and come back. And then it obviously was a marketplace. So the other half of our marketing team and our sales team was focused on uh, you know, selling to brands that might want to reach this audience and engage them. And obviously our pitch to them was, hey, you know, test taking $10,000 that you would have put into Facebook ads or Google ads and try running it on our website where we have this you know, unique uh, group of students that want to learn more about your brand. And, uh, at the time, we had, I think it peaked around 50, but when Darmesh invested, it was probably around 30 or 40 uh, students working for the company. So me mm -hmm. and Jonathan and Chase, my co-founders, we had built out this whole network of students, uh, mostly in Boston. There was a lot of students at Boston College and Northeastern and Harvard and MIT. 
Um, and that was, that was how we were running the business, was all these students who were working, you know, anywhere from five to 30 hours a week based on what they could fit into their schedule. Interesting. Okay. And um, how did you charge? How do we charge the brands? Yeah. Uh, they were similar to like Facebook or Google. They could just put in 5,000, 10,000, whatever they want, and we would charge them uh, a fee for every answer. We would charge them 50 cents, and then we would keep 25 cents for ourselves, and we would pay 25 cents to the students. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay. So basically students were maintaining accounts on your uh, platform and, and answering you know, a certain volume of questions to, to make some side cash. Exactly. Okay. And um, what was your strategy for acquiring these students? Uh, great, great question. Uh, we tested a lot of different things. Uh, we had a referral program that was really popular. Uh, we did create like a campus rep program where we had different students around the country that would tell all their friends about Jebit and we would send them a bunch of Jebit swag they could give out on campus and things like that. But honestly, it kind of it spread very quickly with students. I think we ended up peaking around 200,000 students around the country using it before we shut it down. And we should, we should definitely talk about why we shut it down, but the, the bigger problem um, the bigger problems for us was not around attracting the students. It was more on the brand side. I mean, with any marketplace, you obviously have to have a balance on both sides. Uh, it turns out, you know, college students are very motivated at the opportunity to, we, you would earn at a rate of about $19 an hour on the website, and that was a pretty simple sales pitch to get a lot of college students using it to say, just sit here in your dorm room and uh, engage with some interesting brands and you'll earn $19 an hour. And the brands didn't like that. It was not authentic enough feedback. It wasn't specifically that brands didn't like it. Um, we, so, so we ended up, to give you a little bit more context on when we made the decision, so I ended up dropping out of school, and then six months later, in the middle of 2013, we raised a million and a half, uh, I guess, like second seed round. And so, you know, we were there with a little under two million raised, I hired a team, I think we were about eight or 10 people, and we just realized for a few different reasons, we didn't think this business was ever going to be, you know, a billion dollar company or any, you know, big long-standing business. Um, one of the problems was definitely around the authenticity of the interaction, so I think you have that right, just in terms of, um, you know, the kids were incentivized to be there, so while right. some of them would definitely make genuine connections with the brands, uh, a lot of them were just there to, you know, get their beer money for the weekend or whatever it was, and they didn't really care what brands they were, act, you know, interacting with. And then the other thing we were just experiencing as a small team is it was really pulling us in two different directions to try to build up both sides of the marketplace and always keep it balanced. And so um, the, the kind of two main impetuses of the, the pivot, I guess, that we made was we wanted to help facilitate more genuine interactions between brands and consumers, ones that mm -hmm. weren't monetarily incentivized. And then we didn't want it to all have to happen on our website where we were the marketplace and we were bringing the audience. So we wanted to equip brands with software so they could go build genuine experiences to engage consumers. And we wanted that to be able to happen 
anywhere the brands already have customers, you know, their website, their emails, you know, the ads they're buying to reach their, their potential consumers. Like we just wanted to remove ourselves from that part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So um, this we're talking, the change, the pivot is happening when? In 2014? Yeah, 2014. Okay, so what did you decide to do after that? Uh, we we try to not talk about 2014 and 15 because they were very hard years at Jevet, but that's but that's where all your learnings are. So, so if you exactly. don't mind, please do talk about it. Exactly. So I'm excited to dive into it. So I remember the board meeting at the end of 2013, where I said to my board, you know, hey. We have whatever it was, you know, $1.7 million in the bank, and we really think that we need to, you know, pivot this idea to something different for those reasons I just told you. And thankfully, my board, you know, listened very patiently, and then their first question was, what should we pivot to? And I kind of naively said, well, I haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) You know, here's the things that matter, but I don't know what it's going to be. And thankfully, their answer was, well, we – we invested in you and your co-founders more than we invested in the specific product. So we support you on the pivot. And the only thing they asked me to do was to make sure uh, we didn't hire more people until we hit certain revenue milestones so that we weren't burning more capital than we had planned. And I remember at the time we had a plan to grow from the eight or 10 people we were to probably like 25 or 30 people over the next six months. And I, I remember looking at the numbers they said and saying, you know, no problem. We'll hit that first revenue milestone in three months. And it ended up taking about a year and a half for us to hit that first milestone. So we had a really hard 2014 and first half of 2015, mostly because we just had no idea what, what the product was going to be yet. Like we knew the problems with the first version of the product, but we hadn't really landed on what the new version was going to be. And we experimented with, in hindsight, some really, you know, bad concepts, or at least concepts that weren't right for us. We, there was a period where we were trying to build kind of our own ad network and our own publishing network and, uh, you know, a few different routes we went. But we eventually, probably early 2015, uh, you know, aligned on our, our core offering, which by that time we had realized we wanted to be a SaaS offering. And so it was in the middle of 2015 we launched our SaaS offering, which was basically the, it was a very simple product at the time, but it basically was the ability for a brand to attach a thin bar to the top of their website that would kind of pop down and ask questions of the consumer on the page and then help mm-hmm. direct the consumer to the right parts of the site for them. So it's almost like a little widget to, that easily let a marketer add this to their site and hopefully improve that site experience. Kind of like if you just you know, walked into a store at the mall and there was someone at the door to greet you and ask you a few questions and direct you to the right part of the store. And uh, we, we hit our first million in ARR, which um, I was obviously a goal for you and all, all of your listeners. We hit it on that product, and then we realized there were a few challenges with that that ultimately led us to, to pivoting to what we do now. But uh, let me pause there. So just a second. Let's, uh, let's actually stay on that one for a moment. Um, where, what segment were you getting traction for that to get to a million ARR? Where, what segment were you getting traction on? E- yeah, e-commerce and travel brands. 
were, were the main players then. And small ones, mid-sized ones, where, what, uh, what size players were you yeah, selling to? Mid, mid-market and enterprise. We, um, you know, I, I think our stories on the more unique side in that we actually kind of went enterprise right out of the gate. You know, a lot of companies obviously go premium and, and smaller businesses and then, you know, start scaling up from there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, in 2015, we landed some big deals with people like Mazda and Expedia and eBay. And, you know, it, it was big. Oh, wow. And it was a very, it was a very sales-led model. You know, it was us. We were a young, hungry team, and it was me and my co-founder and a couple people, you know, getting introductions and knocking down doors and finding our way into these big companies um, and, you know, convincing them that this was something they should try. And this is um, what you're describing is large deals then? Um, the average was probably about 40 or 50K a year. So it's a lot of like, you know, 2.5 to 5K a month type range. Mm. Okay. So uh, that got you to, and, and you were direct selling, right? You were actually going after these customers. Correct. Yep. Direct selling to the brands. Yep. And um, now, so when, what happens after um, you hit the 1 million ARR? What's, uh, something changes. You, this is not the direction that you're going next. What was it? What happened? Yeah. So I remember... Um, this was now probably 2016. And I remember, I still actually remember the first, first meeting it came up in was actually a meeting with the marketing team at Constant Contact. Um, so B2B user, obviously, not an not a e-commerce or uh, travel brand, but they, they were using the technology. Um, they're still a customer today. And I remember I was in the room with two marketing people, and we're looking at the bar across the top of their page, and we're talking about the questions they're asking and the logic of where it should redirect people on site based on the answers and things like that. And then the guy pulls it up on his phone and the experience looks horrible on the phone because, you know, you have their website, which was built for desktop in the first place, now shrunk down to a smaller screen. And then you have our little bar that's sitting across the top of the website and that's shrunk down too. And, you know, we were seeing the data in our analytics that, so much more and more of our customers' traffic was coming in through mobile. And we basically just realized that the user experience of what we were doing was not going to work in the future. And, you know, we also realized at the same time that many of the marketing teams we were working with had this problem where they had these legacy websites that were built to be desktop first. And all their brands had done was make those websites responsive, basically just shrink everything down to fit on a screen. And the thing we kept hearing was these mobile responsive experiences are not the ideal experience you want to give a consumer. And if we just take a simple example, I'm an e-commerce brand that sells jeans. You know, I might have 50 pairs of jeans on my website, and the person that's actually looking at my site to buy something might be standing in line at Starbucks and just clicked on an Instagram ad. And the chances that they are going to scroll through 50 pairs of jeans, do any research, and click one and check out is just very unlikely. And the chances that they're then going to engage with some little bar that comes down on the site is even less likely. And so 
the good news was the whole back-end system we had built to create these and write the questions and set the logic and all that, the core of that technology we kept. What we, told, what we did is we completely revamped what the front-end user experience looks like to a consumer, and we built everything to be these fully immersive experiences that take up the entire screen and are built to be mobile first, but will be responsive to desktop, so kind of the reverse order. And so now in an example, if I click on that Instagram ad, I'm brought into a full screen, beautiful Jebit experience, and that experience says something like, hey, we know you're busy, answer five questions, we'll recommend the right pair of jeans for you. And while I'm just standing there in line at Starbucks, I can simply answer the five questions about my interests, my preferences, et cetera. It'll match me to the right pair of jeans. I can either check out right there or I can email it to myself later to check out when I get home. And that pivot to be this, you know, mobile first interactive experiences, that really started to lead to a lot more traction for us um, because we just found a lot of marketers saying, yeah, I have this problem. I wish we had better mobile first experiences and I love that I can come into Jebit and I can just build it quickly and not have to rely on, you know, my engineering team, my developers, my agency, you know, whoever it might be. I see. So, um, so that means that you had to now work with customers who were who had physical locations. No, no. It, uh, a lot of these were still e-commerce, digital, you know, D2C brands. I mean, a lot of our customers do have physical locations too. But um, no, these were just these were you know digital experiences you could do no matter what. I see. So so you just gave that as an example. That's not necessarily the use Correct. case you're talking about. Got it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And what did that do to your business? Uh, I think we tripled the business that first year. So it start, it started working is the short answer. Yeah. Um, and customer acquisition was still direct selling. Yeah, everything's still direct. I think, I think it was 2017 we launched our partnerships with Twitter and Snapchat, and then Pinterest was shortly thereafter. Um, so we did start to add a partnership element to this. But, yeah, I think that was probably about a year after, uh, you know, just pivoting, or I should say evolving, into these mobile-first interactive experiences. Okay. Got it. Um, so what, uh, what time frame are we in now in the storyline? 2017. 2017. 2017, and the funding is still that $2 million that you had raised? No, we then raised a, in 2017, we raised about a $5 million Series A. And the $5 million Series A is on the basis of this mobile-first experience? Correct. Okay, got it. Uh, what happens in 2018? A couple things started to happen. Um, we started talking to a lot of our customers. I remember my co-founder and I went around and we met a bunch of our CMOs. Um, and we basically asked them, we pretty much asked point blank, like, what would you need to see from Jebit or what would you want to see us build for you to spend 10 times as much on our platform as you're spending now. And we were just curious, like, what would people say? Where could we take this? Mm -hmm. And we kept pretty consistently hearing the same story, which was our customers really liked how quick and easy it was to build experiences on Jebit. 
I really liked how well the experiences engaged consumers in the moment, how they could track these experiences were leading to more people buying in the moment because it's a better shopping experience and all of that. And they kept bringing up the concept of what they could do with all the data they were getting from the experiences. And so up until this time, I mean, Jeb, it's known today for the data we help customers collect. You know, you just heard a bunch of the story of the first five years. I had never even mentioned the words declared data, which is what, you know, we, we position a lot of the company around today. And so as we started asking our customers more questions, we realized that most of these CMOs, obviously every marketer wants data on their customers, most of them were either buying a lot of third-party data from other sources, and it cost them a lot of money, and they were never sure how accurate that data was, and it's obviously the same data all their competitors could buy. Or the only other type of data they had was their first-party inferred data, meaning all the things that you click on on their website or you buy, all that behavioral or transactional data. And they kept saying, Jeb, it gives me a really interesting way to actually ask my customers directly things about their interests and their preferences and their motivations, et cetera. And really the only way I would have gotten that before would have been running a survey, but no one likes to do my surveys. So I don't get a lot of data when I run a survey, and I normally have to pay people to do the surveys and all those challenges that come with traditional surveys. And so we realized we had kind of stumbled into this opportunity to help marketers collect this really valuable data at a scale that's like, Many, for many of our customers, it's 10x the volume of data they would get when running a traditional survey. Mm -hmm. And that's where we really announced the, the declared data component of our platform. And we built a lot of capabilities around the ability to aggregate and capture all this data and then integrate this data into the marketing systems you use, like the Salesforces or Adobe's or you know, whatever, system, whatever marketing system a brand uses. SAP, you know, get the data into those systems. And that's really been the focus of the last few years. That's what led to us, you know, raising our $12 million Series B, um, and that's really what drives a lot of the growth of Jebit today, um, is this ability to capture this data at scale through these experiences we've been working on for years. And what kind of, what scale of data are we talking now? In, in terms of what? What scale of data are you collecting? What are we talking? It, it totally depends on the size of the brand. I mean, our largest customers have hundreds of millions of questions that have been answered, and then we have small customers that for them to get, you know, 50,000 questions answered is a lot for them based on the size of their customer base. Um, it kind of goes back to the point I was making earlier of we don't bring the audience to the table anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just right. the software used to create the experiences. So obviously, a customer of ours like the NFL has a much broader reach than a small, you know, e-commerce brand that, you know, sells shoes or whatever it might be. Right. Okay. Very good. Is there anything else that you want to share um, in this story so far? I think the only other immediate thing that comes to mind is it was serendipitous for us to pivot or evolve into the data focus. And I, anyway, I'd love to say this was, you know, we saw all this coming, but, you know, we did this right around the same time that all the privacy legislation started happening with GDPR and CCPA and kind of the world waking up to the fact of buying all this third-party data and all these companies sharing data without consumers' consent 
is just not the right way to do business and not good for consumers. So I, I think in hindsight, that ended up being something that was really beneficial to us. Because the first time for me, I really felt like, oh, we're actually riding the, a, the, a big wave that's happening in the market. You know, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and obviously everybody talks about product market fit. You know, for our first five or six years of Jebit, it felt like we were, you know, pivoting and trying to find what's the solution and trying to find that product market fit. And, you know, the last couple of years, it's been much more clear, uh, you know, that this is, this is something happening in the industry and, you know, we've built a product that's on the right side of it. All right. Very good. I think I have your story. Um, let me take down your email address, Tom, and... Um, my colleague Sheldon is going to work on the story next, so he will be in touch if he has any questions. And I'll awesome. mention to uh, Darmesh that I spoke with you right after talking to you. That's funny. Talking to him. <laughs> Go ahead. What's your email? Uh, Tom at Jebit.com. Okay. Great. Well, we'll be publishing uh, shortly. Uh, your agency can correspond with Sheldon and figure that out the dates and everything. Awesome. I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Thanks. guys. Bye. Bye. See you, Rebecca.